this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. is not a factor to discredit sailing across the Pacific in 2016. That was Bob McDavitt. He is better known as Met Bob, or that's the name of his company. And he has been forecasting weather in the South Pacific for many, many years, since the 1970s. Uh, And as we'll hear, uh, he's advised, for instance, Team New Zealand and South Pacific sailors today are very lucky to have him offering his services at very reasonable rates and also having putting out a free newsletter which he has put out for well over 20 years talking about South Pacific weather as it relates to cruising sailors. So I am very pleased to have Bob McDavitt or Met Bob on the podcast today. Now, that quote refers back to a discussion we had in episode three with Tate McDaniel, who has said he wants to do a round-the-world trip in his West Sail 32, uh, and his boat is currently in Panama, but he thought it was a better idea to skip 2016, uh, in part because of gas prices and in part because of the second year of an El Nino, Uh, to skip ocean sailing in that part of the world in favor of cruising the U.S. by RV. It seems that uh, Met Bob doesn't agree with that opinion uh, in terms of that it's not uh, 2016 will be necessarily a bad year to cross the South Pacific. So my opinion is that every skipper and crew needs to make their own decision. Sailing is fun. This is a pleasurable activity. That being said, if you ask two sailors a question, you'll probably get 10 different answers. And I have known personally, and a lot of other writers have written about this, that there's a lot of people that will love to add on to your wall of worry, saying why you can't do this thing, why you can't do that thing. It's unsafe blah, 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 blah. And a lot of those opinions are not backed up. And so I didn't want to add to the wall of worry for people crossing the South Pacific in 2016 or their relatives without getting a second opinion. And I I, I think that, you know, each skipper, each crew, they make their own decision, but you shouldn't uh, rely on just uh, one source to say, one thing's bad or one thing's good. Uh, Everybody kind of makes their own decision within the confines of their own boat and their own preferences. That being said, I think sometimes you just have to just do it, as the Nike commercial says, that there will not ever be that perfect time with no uncertainty, no doubts, perfect weather forecast. You could fill libraries with all that I don't know about marine weather, but I found it very refreshing to hear Bob McDavitt talk about a lot of the issues that I raised in How to Sail Around the World part-time 
Without any prompting uh, from me, Bob McDavid is from New Zealand. And one of the things he said was that there are typically very windy fronts that run every four or so days between Fiji and New Zealand. And yachts take at least seven days to make that passage. If they're smaller, they'll take more than that. And, you know, I just knew from reading the accounts of other sailors that sailing between New Zealand and Fiji is a tough proposition that tries the crews of many a boat. Bob McDavid, the meteorologist, talks about an incident that I was not aware of, uh, a 1994 disaster over that route where 17 EPIRBs went off. And I did not talk about that in my book, which is going for 99 cents on Amazon, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time. But it certainly makes the point that that is a very dangerous passage. And really going to those high latitudes in New Zealand is not an easy proposition. Let's hear what Bob McDavid has to say. How long have you been doing weather routing for sailors? Uh, I suppose it's a kind of like a, a slow start when I was working with Met Service and then got seconded to uh, Team New Zealand in the challenges for the America's Cup as early as 1988. Yeah. I became a weather ambassador for Met Service based in Auckland and um, would start doing forecasts for cruising yachts around the Pacific. And um, when I retired in 2012, I decided I'd make a kind of a like go into cruise mode permanently and continue doing forecasts for cruising yachts around the South Pacific. You've been a, a meteorologist since college, is that right? Not quite. Um, I got a degree back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, basically in mathematics and information science, which these days is called IT. And um, I was looking around for where to apply that degree and applied to the New Zealand Meteorological Service and they accepted my application. So they put me into training for another couple of years and I became a forecaster then. That's about mid-70s. Okay, so... When you got the name Met Bob, does that mean that you're a meteorologist or you work for, like, the Met Office? Is that nickname? Uh, Met Bob is my company that I set up when I retired from okay. the <laughs> Did people used to call you Met Bob? Is that why, or you just that's just what you named it? Uh, they used to call me Bob, and I thought <laughs> I just had the word Met to it uh, to set up the company had a discussion with some of the people I was working with as to whether it should be Met Bob or Bob Met. And apparently in um, Dutch, Met Bob means with Bob. So that sounds like a good way of, to actually get your weather forecast. Okay. Well, I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a cool name uh, if people, even if people don't call you that. <laughs> it's a good company. So I just noticed on your, your site that you advised Jessica Watson on her uh, round-the-world trip. 
Indeed, that was uh, first of all because she was still a teenager uh, when she was thinking of doing a circumnavigation, and I was a little bit uh, well. I know how you can measure risk in terms of doing an adventure, and there is such a term as acceptable risk. The threshold of acceptable risk gets uh, applies differently to different people in different circumstances. But in case I thought, well, how about you sail the Tasman Sea solo first and see how that goes, and then take on the world. And that's exactly what she did. And once she um, had no problems crossing the Tasman Sea solo, I thought, okay, yeah, right, acceptable risk to try on the world. Well, that sounds... That may be acceptable risk for her, but it didn't. Sailing the Tasman Sea doesn't sound like an acceptable risk for me. But indeed, it, uh, it applies to circumstances, but it is a good term to use. I'm really interested in in, in her trip and and uh, you know what you've been doing the sailing weather routing since what year? Let's see. I started doing weather routings for people when I was working with Met Service. And um, I suppose you can look at the time that I spent when I was working with Team New Zealand for America's Cup as being a sort of a good grounding in that, that idea. Well, it sounds um, pretty good. What, what campaign was that? The first one was in Perth in 87. In that stage, the New Zealand Challenge was called New Zealand Challenge. Then San Diego in... Um, 90 and 92 and that then they changed their name to Team New Zealand um, by the time they'd come back to Auckland with the cup in the 90s my job was as a weather ambassador for Met Service so I was also located in Auckland and I was working with all of the syndicates in terms of supplying them with daily weather forecasts for um, the well for the cup for the duration that got me into the idea of doing routing forecasts for yachts at sea and word of mouth spread. In fact, there was one particular storm in 1994, which was now called the Pacific Storm. It was uh, in May when most of the fleet were travelling from Auckland to Tonga and this was a, it turned out that it could have earned itself a a name as a tropical cyclone, but it was never actually named as such. Produced uh, gale force winds for three days on that route, rising to a climax on one particular day where 17 EPIRPs went off in one afternoon. I don't know if that's a record or not, but uh, um, there was loss of life as well in that tragic storm. And um, looking at it in hindsight, uh, although the weather data was a little bit less reliable in those days, there were some clues that you could possibly have just waited a few days and then gone and then missed everything. So that's uh, in discussion with uh, somebody um, who runs an organisation called Pangolin, uh, Mike Harris, and we decided, well, we should actually uh, do something about uh, now that in those days, the mid-90s, a lot of yachts were using Pactor modems to be able to get data by email that we should provide them with weather forecasts. And that's how it all started. The New Zealand government was providing forecasts for yachtsmen. 
Yep, the New Zealand government under GMDSS regulations provides uh, weather forecasts on the high seas and warnings covering a, a large area of ocean. Um, Fiji looks after the bit between the equator and 25 south and, and New Zealand looks from 25 south down to the ice shelf all the way from halfway across to Australia all the way across to uh, eastwards to pretty well border and uh, well mostly to Chile so it's a large area of ocean and they do icy forecasts covering five areas updated twice a day people with the SSB could maybe get those via weather facts you can get the charts the weather maps the isobars on them by facts the uh, high seas forecasts are turned into English by uh, Maritime New Zealand um, and broadcast uh, on a frequency um, from a radio station called um, ZLM. And, and that's, that's available to people that have uh, SSB radios? SSB radio, correct. And so before that, there were not the SSB forecasts? Well, the SSB radio started uh, well before I was born. Okay. Um, probably uh, around the turn of the, around the, in the 50s, I think, maybe in the late 40s after World War II. Oh. The um, high seas forecasts have been going uh, for many a year, and also the weather facts have been going for many a year, and there's been no change in those services. So what changed in 94? Backdoor modem. You can actually connect that to your SSB and get an email. That's ah, what changed. okay. All right, so people were getting sale mail emails. Uh, sale mails, yeah, that's correct. Uh, once sale mail uh, and email, there's also a wind link, which provides the same service. Once the, the technology got to that extent, well, then we could actually communicate with individual yachts while they were sailing. Ah, okay. That. You didn't, before so that, it was just very general. Be by voice. Okay, so before that, you were you were just giving out the Met Service and other weather organizations around the world were giving out things that you could get by SSB or Weather Facts. But after '94, you guys were communicating directly with individual yachts. That's correct. That was the technological advance which started me doing the uh, routing forecasts. I remember having a discussion with Mike Penglin actually down at the squadron having over a beer. We were discussing the 94 storm and he, what he wanted to do was set up a system whereby, because he had a pactor modem and he could use it, people with, with that technology could actually email in weather reports to Pangolin as a website and it would then be able to make these weather, uh, these observations, these reports available on a website so that other people around the world could see them. And so he set up a system called Yacht Reps and it was kind of working but there weren't that many people uh, taking it on board and he was wondering how can I possibly sort of encourage them to log it to set up. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, how about I write a blog telling the yachts that are in your system what weather to avoid around the South Pacific. I'll do it once every week, say on a Sunday, and um, those people can get that blog by um, their sail mail. 
So we set that up. That was in 95. That blog is still going today. So what is it now? It's uh, 21 years old today. Wow, and, that's a long uh, blog. I call my blog the weather blog. The weather blog, yeah. The weather blog, okay. Wow, uh, I guess you probably get a, a, a lot of visitors. The Pangolin List, as uh, I call it, uh, with Mike Harris, is still going, and that's got about 300 people on it. And I've got two lists uh, because I've, uh, since I've retired, I've, had, uh, I've got a, both the text version for the sale mail people and an illustrated version with all the diagrams on it. So there's two lists there. So all in all, the number of subscribers at present is about 1,500 from all of the lists. But if you look at the technology, uh, about 3% of the, the, that 1,500 are opening it each week. There's no way to do you distinguish between subscribers that are uh, getting it through sale mail or those that are just, you know, getting it from maybe a more land-based source? Oh, yeah, we know the emails of everybody who it's being sent to. So we can. I haven't actually had a look at a breakdown, but I did a few years ago. I think it was about 30 to 40% sale mail. Oh, okay. So it is, and of course, on uh, Mike Harris's list, which I don't have a copy of, that would be all sale mail. Okay. Or some Winlink ones is there as well. Jimmy Cornell, he does estimates of you know how many people go to Tahiti and stuff like that, and so you know just thinking in round numbers, maybe a thousand each year. I think was around his estimate, and maybe half that make it to Australia at some point. Traveling from east to west. Yes, traveling from east to west, you know, in the southern hemisphere, trade wind belt. So does that sound about right to you based on your list? I don't know the details, but that sounds reasonable. I got your name from uh, another forecaster who focuses on the Atlantic Ocean and targets probably U.S. sailors more than and Canadian sailors more than anything. So about how many uh, yachts are you advising, for instance, this season in all your in, in all your kind of paid services? Uh, right. Uh, currently on my, in my do list, there's seven there waiting. Um, nobody's actually traveling today, but there's a few in transit and a few waiting to go. In any particular year, Last year, I did 350, uh, handled 350 yachts over a whole year. So just about one a day, really. want to try and keep it uh, sort of low-key. You don't really want to uh, overburden your time, do you? So you have, a, you have kind of a free list, and then you have a, uh, you give, like, paid forecast before passages is that what is the, that the services you offer well there's three services that i offer the linus uh first one is um the uh the blogs and they are free to anybody who wants to subscribe or get them and they're on the internet as well no problems just go to metbob.com and you can have a look at the latest blog uh there's a book which is about the marine weather of the south pacific uh, which I wrote, oh, admittedly, uh, about more than 10 years ago, so I could probably do an update now, but um, it's available and people find it very useful, especially if you're coming into the Pacific Ocean from somewhere else, the weather, weather is different. So you get to learn the lo- names of the local uh, characters that hang around the Isobars. And then there's my paid services, which is uh, where I email you 
and we get in touch and we can discuss the weather for a particular voyage. And I break that down to the outlooks to decide on a departure day, the voyage forecast itself, and then updates on route. Okay, so I, I know one weather router who's not in your region, and he kind of does like a daily email service. Is, do you do something like that, or do you kind of make it more tailored? Uh, I don't really do that unless I'm asked to. I'd like to try and keep the uh, costs down for the people on a budget. And so when I receive a position report en route, then I can send an update, and that makes sense because you really want to know where the vessel is before you actually try and update the uh, the rest of the trip. Yeah, I would think the numbers in the South Pacific and the area of ocean is so huge that it's very hard to have kind of a generic service versus somebody that's advising maybe the Eastern Caribbean or the Bahamas. Yes, and uh, I've also has in my career been a marine forecaster with Met Service, the ones that do the high sea forecasts. Right, been doing that for a few years. When I was doing that, there was no real services such as Metbold around, and occasionally a, a yacht or even a, a vessel, perhaps a, um, a power vessel wanting to go down to the ice or something, would call in by phone and ask for a forecast for a voyage. And of course the poor old marine forecaster on the bench there, uh, with all their daily jobs, were given the task of once they've finished that before they can go home, can you please do this forecast? So we would do those. There would be no charging system, no system in place for a large company like MetService to be able to go and collect 50 bucks or something from the person who had requested the forecast so it was supplied free. But the time that was being uh, spent to do it was by a uh, forecaster, a bench forecaster, somebody who was uh, doing shift work, and they would hurry it up at the end of their regular jobs before they go home. Okay. I, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense to have a dedicated person that's being adequately compensated could you just give us an idea of what are the costs for your services i think maybe the listeners would not like to know that yep no change over the years it's ten dollars for every five minutes of my time a outlook might take me five minutes or ten minutes perhaps sometimes to do if it takes less than five minutes then i don't bother to charge the voyage forecast can take 30 to 40 minutes because you've got to consider everything and all the op- all the possibilities. And the outlooks on route might take 10, 15 minutes, perhaps dropping down to 7 minutes as we get closer to the destination. So adding all that up, it might be, uh, for a long voyage, it might be 60 minutes of my time. That's $120 New Zealand, 90 US. Okay. That's about 0.7 or something at present. Okay. So it's 0.7 of... One, two, I think about 90, maybe 80, $80, okay. Okay. It seems very hard to give a forecast for somebody going from, let's say, Galapagos to Marquesas. Well, not that much that happens in the weather between Galapagos and Marquesas. Uh, this time of the year, as we're approaching the equinox, there could be a kind of like a mirror of the convergence zone sitting around five south because the convergence zone normally hangs between 2 and 8 north, 
But at this time of the year, the sun is directly overhead uh, around about five south, and that creates a kind of like a mirror one. So there's a, sometimes at this time of the year, there's a convergence zone to worry about. That's about it. Okay, so usually people are worried about the ITCZ, and so maybe if you were able to reach them uh, or they were willing to go for it, they would, they would want to know about maybe potential squalls. They're probably little else. Uh, they're also very interested in the currents, of course, because uh, they're very strong in that area, especially now uh, on the tail end of an El Nino episode and the currents are rip borings going to the uh, west very strongly. So you want to latch into that current, but you want to avoid the uh, ITCZ, ITCZ because and that's a bit further north of where you want to go anyway. So there is a sort of a magic latitude where you can get uh, avoid the current, avoid the uh, squalls, and get the current. Ah, okay. Well, that sounds good that you have a favorable current coming out of the Galapagos, right? If you're headed west. Yeah, the other problem, I guess, on that route is what the winds are doing. Um, they're normally very quiet around Galapagos itself, uh, and the trade winds in between. But if you go too far south, if you try going around about uh, sort of five or six south on the way from Galapagos to Marquesas, you, you might get into a zone where the strong, where the trade winds are a bit too strong. Had a few yachts last year complaining about these 25 knot winds because they're all on the beam there, you see, and the boats weren't really built to take that kind of a tilt. And the swells coming out of the Southern Ocean, uh, something which people... Uh, coming in from the Atlantic don't seem to be uh, uh, have seen before. I mean, they're only two to three meter swells, but apparently um, they can be uh, new to people from the Atlantic. Yes, yeah, so I, I think the swells are probably bigger in the Pacific than they are in the Atlantic, typically. And so it's a bit of uh, getting used to for the visitors. Okay. <laughs> well, all part of the fun, right? Exactly. It's, it's kind of like a trial of passage. You survive that, and you can enjoy the Pacific. All right. So one of the reasons I brought you on because I was I had a guest on who's thinking about doing around or planning on doing a round the world trip, and his name is Tate McDaniel, and he sails a West Sail thirty two sailboat, and he said that he was worried about sailing the South Pacific in two thousand sixteen because of El Nino. And maybe you could explain to me how uh, El Nino works, how common is an El Nino event, and how does that affect uh, someone doing a, a South Pacific trade wind crossing? Uh, yep, okay, the El Nino is a name given to a seasonal forecast, seasonal episode of weather, which is caused by the uh, uh, heat from the sun being trapped in the eastern Pacific Ocean, the equatorial eastern Pacific Ocean. So um, the heat from the sun's coming into the planet uh, through the atmosphere and absorbed by the ground or the sea. And sometimes the amount of energy being used by the weather systems is um, such that there's a little bit of energy left over and that's actually stored like in a battery uh, in that particular target area the eastern end of the largest, widest ocean is the best place to store the heat, and that seems to be the target area around Galapagos for our plant. 
and then this battery type storage system kind of comes and goes when the uh, energy is stored and you've got warmer than normal seas around the Galapagos we call it El Nino which relates to the warmer seas flooding onto the uh, Peru coast around December so the locals called it after the festival that they were having at that time El Nino de Navidad so that's how it's got its name when the battery has gone the other way and has given away all of its heat so that the seas around Galapagos are actually slightly cooler than normal uh, same thing's the Humboldt current because that brings the cold water up from the uh, southern ocean then we call it La Nina which is, was a term coined as being the antithesis of a, an El Nino okay in terms of how that battery goes and comes it tends to spend a third of its time in an El Nino position a third of its time in a neutral position and a third of its time in a La Nina position so if you want to try and watch it in terms of a, a statistics or a normal distribution it's not so it's a tripolar system anyway at present it's El Nino which means that these sea temperatures around Galapagos are warmer than normal. They reached a peak around about uh, December. They're now starting to slowly cool. The forecast is that the parameters we use to measure those sea surface temperatures are that they'll be back to neutral by April, maybe May, and perhaps even diving to cooler than normal by uh, June, July, August. It's not a factor to discredit sailing across the Pacific in 2016. The non-cyclone season, the cruising season is April, so it sounds April or May starts, so it sounds like El Nino will be dissipated by that point. In neutral position, yeah, that's correct. Um, it's interesting we're comparing this El Nino with the one back in 98 because they're both of much the same magnitude. And in 98, there was a couple of uh, tropical, not cyclones, depressions really, that did bring some damage to some of the Marquesas Islands in March 98. So the next few weeks, March 2016, uh, if we have a repeat of that idea, well then there'll be some nasty weather around the Marquesas but that should be gone by April. Okay, you think that the El Nino is going to cause, what, the dissipating El Nino is going to cause some uh, worse than uh, normal weather in, in the Marquesas? Uh, maybe in the next few weeks, yes. There's, there's that possibility. Also, that energy that is being stored in that area of the Earth is now getting itself into the atmosphere all around the planet, which means that uh, all storms over the whole planet are expected to be more active than normal from, well, during February and March this year. Um, so, I, you know, I think uh, one of the things that uh, Mr. McDaniel was emphasizing was that he's got a really slow boat, so he has to leave fairly early in the season based on what he wants to schedule uh, and that he, if he wanted to leave Panama, he needed to leave it in March. But uh, yeah. he, he wouldn't be in the Marquesas in March. Uh, He'd be in maybe the Galapagos by the end of March if he left in yeah. early March. Early March for Panama to Galapagos uh, around about now, the next few weeks, because 
Equinox seems to be uh, a changing point in the weather around that part of the world. Up until then, we get a quite frequent northeast bursts, as I call them, winds blowing northeasterly out of Panama, which are quite good for getting towards Macaques, uh, to getting towards Gallipagos or into the Pacific. But some kind of magic uh, switch as soon as the equinox goes past those northeast bursts become much fewer and, and farther between and not so reliable and in fact there are southwest winds around the Galapagos so it's a bit of a beat rather than a, a having a he, a tailwinds ah okay so if you're kind of late if you're kind of uh, closer to may then you're probably going to have headwinds going into galapagos or nothing yeah, that's correct. Or you might have to be motoring through a period of light winds. So um, try and, if you can, leave Panama before the equinox. Good advice. If I make it there, I probably won't take your advice, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, just if you can, that's all. It's just a comfort thing. Uh, my boat's in New Orleans right now, so I have no plans right. to be in the Pacific in 2016. Um <laughs> So, do you think it there's any truth in it that you you know you you want to work if if the the El Nino was uh, lasting through the southern hemisphere fall and winter, do you, do you think it would be uh, a bad time to to sail the South Pacific? How would that affect things? We've just been having an El Nino summer here. It hasn't been too bad. Does encourage the all of the weather zones to shift closer to the equator, so that includes the Roaring Forties, those disturbed westerlies that rattle across the Southern Ocean, and they have been regularly lapping across Southern New Zealand even during the summertime. If we had an El Nino during our winter, then those um, Roaring Forty westerlies would be all the way across the whole of New Zealand and your final trip, say, from Tonga to Australia or New Zealand later this year, you do have to take into account those Roaring Forties with their disturbed westerlies and their fronts. But as we're going for the El Nino to fade, it looks as though those particular pattern might not be so much of a problem. So you're saying the El Nino may cause the Roaring Forties to go way up into the 30s or something like that? That's exactly right. Yes. Uh, does it does it make anything else more difficult? Does it change the trades in any way? El Nino weakens the trades. Uh, in fact, the uh, mechanism by which the heat is stored in the around the Galapagos is due to uh, a lowering of the wind speeds in the trades. And um, what those trade winds do is they kind of uh, pull the sun heated surface water off to the west um, dragging it off to the uh, west but when they're less than normal that uh, mechanism doesn't work so well so the sun heated seawater sits around the Galapagos um, but the trade winds uh, watching them at present are still a knot or two less than normal but when you're talking about 15 20 knot winds what's a knot or two yeah, that sounds like plenty. Yep. I think you're more worried about the, the 5 to 10 or 0 to 5. Yeah, there was that zone of calm sort of around uh, the Galapagos area itself, which does get wider uh, 
during an El Nino. The other th problem with El Nino years is that it encourages what I call equatorial westerlies or near equatorial westerlies, which are bursts of westerly wind, which are completely the opposite direction of a trade wind. And they start off around about the Australian, North Australia, and travel eastwards across the Pacific. Um, they are also linked to a phenomenon which we call the MJO, or the Madden-Julian Oscillation, which is like a pulse of energy starting off in the Indian Ocean and going eastwards into the Pacific Ocean. Uh, these combine to trigger tropical cyclones, and indeed uh, Cyclone Winston was a perfect example of an MJO and a near equatorial westerly trigger. But they are only events that normally only occur during this, our summer, which is our cyclone season. We don't expect them much during the uh, cruising season. Well, I'm glad you brought up uh, Tropical Storm Winston. Do you think that that was uh, also a symptom of the El Nino or it's just bad luck? It formed in an El Nino year. It formed by means of that mechanism I was talking about, the MJO. But it was formed at a time, thanks to the El Nino, that the sea surface temperatures in that area were slightly warmer than normal. Therefore, it was more ferocious than normal. It also took a, uh, an erratic path so that it could actually do more damage than a normal tropical cyclone. But that wasn't related to El Nino. That was just related to the uh, environment of the upper winds that it encountered while it was travelling around. Uh, and it, it's done quite a bit of damage in... in uh... Fiji, hasn't it? Exactly. Uh, talking about uh, half of the houses in Fiji require repair. Wow. I, you know, I've just seen some res reports, uh, but it sounds pretty awful. It seems like it was also a very direct hit towards one of the more populous centers in Fiji. Uh, no, it missed Suva. Uh, well, they didn't get much out of it. It changed direction uh, while it was heading in that direction. It's moved through um, what they call fly water and skirted around the north end of Viti Levu, the largest island. Uh, the population centres there are not as uh, much as Suva. And when the second most populated places, Latoka and Nandi, they wind direction was uh, sort of offshore at the time and also the wind was blowing over the mountains so they didn't get as much rain as the places that were worst hit. Typically on a, a cyclone or tropical storm most of the damage is the flooding not the wind even though the wind kind of makes headlines and uh, that's certainly the case in Fiji. Yes the, uh, um, the path it took was right sort of across the middle of the group and it may have avoided that by doing so. Some of the, well, the capital, uh, most of the uh, f damage done in the outer islands especially was from the flooding. But the wind damage itself was something they're not used to or haven't seen for a long time. What, uh, what fact, were the maximum was, wind speeds of Winston? Maximum measured was, uh, I think, 180 kilometres per hour. 180 kilometers. Oh, okay. Which is about um, 100 knots, 120 miles per hour. 
I think something like that. And so it was a category. Was that a category five when it hit, or yes, category five. Yeah, category. The categories used for classifying tropical cyclones are different in the Pacific from what they are in the Atlantic. Oh, okay. All right. It's good to know. But up at the upper reaches, though, category five is a category five. Okay. Did you have any clients who were uh, in Fiji at the time? No, it's. Uh, <laughs> It's, we were all well expecting Winston. It's, uh, it was, uh, everybody was as well prepared as possible for it. Well, that, that's, that's good. Do you have any advice for uh, people thinking of a Pacific crossing? What should they think about in terms of weather? I think one of the particular challenges that I would come to me uh, in my limited understanding is that, you know, the books that I've read about, you know, like, uh, signal and noise and that type of thing is that you go further than five days out on a weather forecast and oftentimes you're kind of limited to the almanac in terms of accuracy you can't get much more accurate than an almanac uh, but you may dispute that how does how does one plan for kind of a, a, a longer ocean crossing uh, than that well i suppose the pilot charts have got their place in your planning um they uh kind of give you the average over the whole breakdown into monthly steps and therefore being averaged uh, data it's not the same as weather it's sort of closer to climatology but it can show you that some months are slightly different from other months in terms of when to uh, work out a, a vague schedule main weather information uh, uh, some advice i can give is try and avoid the gales yes that's right. <laughs> and you know it's common sense so the question then is when and where will the gales occur you see right. and um you get Gale force winds and squally showers, which are associated with the convergence zone. And in the South Pacific, the convergence zone is not like the ITCZ, as you call it, in the Northern Hemisphere. It's, it, it's got a little bit more variability to it. It comes and it goes, and, and those cycles are related to the MJO cycle, which goes all year, comes and goes all year. So try not to encounter the convergence zone during an MJO that cuts down your uh, um, voyaged uh, possibilities. The other possibility of gales in the uh, tropics is related to tropical depressions which can occur at any time of the year. Uh, the cyclones, the ones which already grow up to have hurricane force winds in, in them, only occur during our warm months. If you go to the northwest Pacific, they occur all year round up there, but in the South Pacific, they only occur sort of between around about December through to uh, April. So you avoid those months, that's simple. And the other thing to avoid uh, the fronts that do come out of the Southern Ocean at times and move along maybe even as far north as 25 South. If you're doing that final trip from Tonga to New Zealand or Australia, uh, yeah, the fronts are about... <clears throat> four or five days apart and the voyage is going to take you seven or nine days so you've got to go through one that's uh, the way it works so try and uh, arrange your frontal encounter to be when the front set its weakest there you go simple as that yes but definitely if you're going to those higher latitudes say uh, higher than 20 
you have a much increased risk of gale. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, you can see it in the pilot charts. Correct. Uh, the risk of gales. Actually, the pilot charts don't quite show you the risk of gales properly in the uh, tropical part because they're all averaged out and they don't actually capture the gale force winds that occur in the squalls of the of the convergence zone. So it just gives you a placid uh, 15 knot uh, plus or minus couple of knots standard deviations for the trade winds. And that's why they're called trade winds. They're so dependable you can trade on them. However, in a convergence zone, you get these 30 to 35 knots for 30 to 35 minutes, maybe once every other day. Those are the things to avoid. Right. Uh, because probably you have all your sail up because there's no wind to begin with. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you catch you unwary and you've got all your sail up, they're going to push you over, yes. What are the latitudes that the convergence zone varies from? From the Solomons to during the winter, well, during the cooler months, down to sort of the southern cooks can vary... Um, let's see. Its northern reaches can get up to the northern Cooks and uh, Marquesas at times, and its southern reaches can get down to New Caledonia and Tonga and the southern Cooks at times. And it just keeps going north south, and it it has uh, near monthly fluctuations in intensity. So, someone on on kind of the more eastern track. Galapagos, kind of the Marquesas, the ITCZ, is that going to be around 5 degrees? Where would that be? Galapagos to Marquesas, well, the Galapagos are just south of the equator. The ITCZ is up around about 2 north to 8 north, up to the north. Okay, so... Uh, along the equator, there's that beautiful west-going current, which you'll probably want to use. So the idea is to have go pretty well along the equator because it's out of and south of the and no squalls there you see oh so two to eight um, i see so two to eight is the itcz but the equator is not in the itcz for that portion correct the equator is just pretty well doldrums yeah okay so you won't have any wind but you'll have a current pushing you along <laughs> you will have wind to the west of about a hundred west, but east of that, you are not much wind at all. Okay. <laughs> How have uh, yachtsmen tended to get in trouble uh, with weather, uh, in your experience? Uh, say on just the Pacific crossing, in the tra kind of the trade wind belt. I suppose the Pacific storm is an indicator of that. Uh, 1994, uh, small, low, tropical depression, which wasn't really a cyclone. It was. Uh, it, this was in May. Um, formed around Vanuatu, and there was a very intense high over New Zealand at the same time, a high on the weather map. The pressures around New Zealand were about 1,035, the pressures up or down around New, uh, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, in that low, were dropping down to below a thousand, and so all the isopars got, uh, got squashed closer together in a zone, which was exactly where these yachts were going past. Now I call that a squash zone, okay? And in that area, the wind 
speeds were uh, probably 30 to 40 for about three days and then they built up to become gale force 35 or 40 knots gusting 50 knots for one afternoon by that time of course all of the uh, skippers were too tired to be able to handle the extra impact and it was because of the timing of the uh, rally that particular one little storm managed to encapture uh, something like uh, 30 vessels and the 17 air poops were set off so they so, so you're saying maybe that a, a, a leading indicator is the squashed isobars yeah avoided the squash zone uh, with uh, you probably won't be able to see where they might form uh, when you uh, voyaging by yourself or even by looking at isobar maps so that's where you need the help of a, somebody who's used to looking for such and also the idea of um sort of everybody going to the same place at the same time try and avoid that idea too yeah i'm, I'm not a fan of the idea if nothing else just because i don't want to run into anybody <laughs> right uh, separation is, is a good idea uh, so I guess you're not a fan of rallies. Uh, it's, it's just looking at that particular one event, and if there was more separation, well, then it would have um, probably meant less damage. But um, that's it, there's also safety in numbers, you see. So there's two sides to that coin. And and the safety is that they can rescue one another. Exactly, and also they can see what's they can share each other's experiences in terms of what's coming, pass it on and um, uh, share from his, yeah, basically uh, spread the word. You know, have you seen a lot of yachts that got in trouble in the ITCZ uh, with squalls? Is it, you, you mentioned that quite a bit. Uh, yes, I've encountered some. I think in my blogs I've written down a few accounts of uh, all squalls going through and how it changes things. Uh, usually what breaks? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, repeat that one, please. What usually breaks when it goes pear-shaped? Oh, right, yes. Well, uh, as you kind of indicated before, they suddenly find they're overpowered and they can't reef the main, right? <laughs> um, it's normally some of the stays on the mast, um, and the thing is that they get from a very relaxed and who cares uh, mood into my god where am I survival kind of mood very quickly and um, it's the shock that which more than the damage which upsets them okay uh, but they usually muddle through in the end yeah the, the uh, craft of today's uh, yachts are built very well would you like to put anything else uh, in the podcast anything I didn't ask you but I should have asked you well, basically, the adventure aspect of the whole thing, I guess, is that um, moving into the South Pacific is a interesting uh, movement into a new t- sort of cruising ground. It has its own characters uh, that you will encounter uh, from time to time. The South Pacific Convergence Zone is something to w- worthy of study. Each year, it seems to take a slightly different location, and so that f- trip from Tahiti to Tonga 
can depend upon very much where that convergence zone is. It's like a rite of passage going through that. Once you get through it, you're on the other side. And uh, I hope you all uh, get to do so because it is an adventure which is very memorable. Okay, so you're saying that a lot of yachts uh, get in, uh, get into some trouble with the convergence zone between uh, Tahiti and Tonga. That's where you. That's correct. That's where you normally will encounter it, and the strategy, what path you take to try and avoid it, will change according to the season, of course, and according to what its moods are at that particular time. So, if you're thinking of going to Sawaro or somewhere like that. Well, then you'd have to either make sure that the convergence zone isn't there when you're there, or if you're a bit more flexible, well, then you might think of another path between Tahiti and Tonga. So it, it makes it makes a lot of sense to track very carefully uh, where the convergence zone is uh, at the particular time of year, or particular year you're there. Yes, uh, and to try and track it, uh, it's not very well in indicated on the... Uh, Isobar maps, except for on the Fiji Met Service ones, and it's best look, best located by looking at a satellite image rather than an Isobar map. And that's that's probably where a lot of people ask for your advice on predicting it. Uh, is it is there a seasonal pattern to it? Uh, there is, um, and I give my uh, uh, updates about where I think it is and what it's going to be doing in my blogs, my weather blogs. Okay, so if somebody wanted to start the learning experience, they should definitely uh, subscribe to your free weather blog. Yep. What is the Been website doing them every for that? Sunday, well, New Zealand time, uh, every week for the last 21 years. What's the, the name of your website? Oh, metbob.com. Okay, and they can find the link to your weather blog and subscribe yep. there. Okay. Great. Well, thank you, Bob. Uh, thank you for taking time out on your Saturday, and uh, thank you for helping out so many sailors. Cheers. We have some really great guests coming on in the coming weeks. I won't jinx it by saying their names, uh, but I'm very happy, and they're all heroes of mine, and unlike me, they know how to sail a boat fast. Check out my book, Slow Boat to the Bahamas. It's a funny look at getting the sailing bug and going on the big trip with a four-year-old and a four-pound dog. If you don't like to read, but you want to help out the show anyways, uh, you can always uh, join the Slow Boat Yacht Club for as little as $5 going to slowboatsailing.com. Links to all my books are on that website. It's not it's not free to have website hosting. It's not free to have podcast hosting. Everything you can do helps out greatly. This is a labor of love. Fair winds, and I hope you go on the cruise of your dreams. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.